All right, friends, welcome to Better Bible Reading with Kevin Morris. I'm so glad to be with you for another episode, and not just another episode, but more importantly to me, an interview episode, which I love doing these. And I have a, we'll call him a frequent guest quite yet, but this is the second time that he's been on the show. We have with us yet again, Dr. Matthew Everhard. He was with us a while back uh, when he was helping us out with the connection between Peter Van Maastricht and Jonathan Edwards. And now we have him with us to discuss his latest and greatest book, Souls, How Jesus Saves Sinners. Dr. Everhart, so glad to be with you for another episode. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate our friendship. And now that we've met in real life at General Assembly this past summer, I can call you a sincere and true friend at this point. So (laughs) thanks for having me on. Yeah, so we met in Birmingham uh, for our uh, denomination, the PCA. We had our General Assembly, uh, and we ran into each other there. And so we are now, we have progressed from internet buddies to real-life friends. So that was really cool to be able to meet up. Uh, So yeah, uh, let's get into this. Um, I have enjoyed, I have been privileged to read through this book. And I have, uh, as you know, uh, set up a kind of a handful of questions here. We can certainly kind of expand that or whatever. But uh, I, I wrote out some questions that I thought would be helpful uh, to help you as listeners uh, get a feel for this book, understand its significance, uh, and we'll kind of work through those kind of question by question. So first and foremost, probably uh, what I'm curious to hear, what listeners I'm sure would be curious to hear as well is why this book how do you think it's different from other books on this particular topic uh mm-hmm. feel free to take that and, and run with it sure well the topic is the gospel and the gospel is not unique to me of course the gospel is what the church has always believed for 2000 years uh and even before that we might say in the proclamation of the coming of the messiah and that messiah has come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is a book that simply intends to share the gospel with the whole world, um, with as many people as I can while I'm alive. I'm a gospel preacher, and I love sharing the good news of Jesus. It's the best message in the world. And so in one sense, I could not help but write this book because all I think about, all I write about, all I study about is the good news of the gospel. And so whether I'm preaching or teaching Bible studies or in the church or uh, doing more academic enterprises, I'm always just thinking about the Redeemer who is who is Christ. And so this is in one sense, though, the book that I've kind of always wanted to write, because in many of my other um, written formulations, the things I do academically, I'm often talking about uh, theology, um, in particular, the works of Jonathan Edwards, who is sort of my specialty as an academic writer. Um, But even there, I'm just trying to share the gospel through what I know about church history and theology, whether it's through the the mouth or the pen of Jonathan Edwards or any other person. My goal is to get to Christ, always get straight to the gospel as quickly as I can. And so this book is a desire to share the gospel. In some sense, Kevin, it's not much more than a tract. It's only 188 pages, so I like to describe it as a longer tract. And it's something that I I wish that people would give to friends, give to unbelievers, give to colleagues, give to people in their new membership classes at church, maybe as a Christmas gift to a neighbor, I don't know. But uh, my point 
in the book is to as quickly as possible introduce people to the saving events of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, those three things, his life, his death, and his resurrection are in, in some ways the theme of the entire book. And we can we can get into some more specifics if you want. But let me just let me just say this. Uh, one of the reasons that I wrote this book is not that I'm going to say anything new or original. In fact, I, I say in there, I'd be embarrassed if somebody said that there was a new thought in here. <laughs> okay. Theological novelty is not a virtue when it comes to a gospel proclamation or Bible interpretation. But I am concerned. I am concerned that the church, um, the church writ large, has before in the past and does still currently lose its way sometimes and get off message. The church can sometimes suffer what we call mission creep, which is where it forgets what it was designed to do. And to that extent, I'm also sort of critiquing false gospels and errant messages of legalism and antinomianism and things like that. So I'm really just trying to make sure that whoever gets their hands on this book, whatever the Lord does with it, at least they can come away saying that they've heard the gospel clearly articulated. And that's that's why I wrote it. Yeah, I, I think your mentioning of this as kind of a expanded Bible tract, I think is a, a good way to put it. I think that not to disparage those in any way, but I think a lot of times when I do read tracks, I'm always wishing there was more context in there. It's almost like you you feel as if you have to do a five minute sales pitch for Christianity and you're like, what in the world do you say? You have to be selective in five minutes. You have to be selective in like a little tiny rectangular tract. I think this book uh, is is a great way to compare that. You kind of take that idea of a tract, but you expand on it. Like it's not just, you know, gospel 101. Like you have some good context. You kind of feather things out in a few different locations and i think it provides a really good uh maybe here's a presentation of the gospel but also here's the christian worldview itself yeah, like yeah. summarized mm -hmm. and i think that i appreciated the way that it's written i think it's very like approachable in that way mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. okay so we move to um the title itself uh souls how C jesus saves sinners you said this book is about the gospel and I think it's a very maybe provocative, if we could even say it that way, title, souls. Why mm -hmm. did you pick that title? Like what specific angle are you trying to present when it comes to the gospel in the context of, of souls? Yeah, thank you for asking that question, because the title is something that I actually really like about the book. Uh, the title is hopefully provocative in that the very title itself suggests that there is an immortal aspect to our human nature. So what we are is we're human beings. And as such, we have a physical body and we also have a spiritual soul. And if the Bible is right, and I believe it is, then the soul is going to persist even after our death and is going to reside somewhere forever. And according to scripture, there's only two places. There's heaven and there's hell. And so this is really the most important question that we could ever really think about, which is what's going to happen to my soul when my physical body dies. Now, in focusing on the soul, and obviously I'm trying to be somewhat provocative, even just suggesting a reminder you have a soul, 
I'm not neglecting the body because uh, that would be the era of Platonism. Platonism is the idea that only what is ethereal is real and that the material world is essentially inconsequential. But Christians actually have a pretty robust theology of the physical body. We believe that our bodies were created by God, that both body and soul are in some ways image bearers. Um, we bear the image of God who made us according to Genesis chapter 1. And even the physical body does that to some extent. But the problem is that in our day and age, we have so much emphasis on the body. Think about all of the beauty products we sell. Think about all of the emphasis on eating, eating clean. Think about all the emphasis on being physically in shape that we neglect the, the even more important matter, which is, which is the soul. So while we expect the body to be raised at the resurrection, um, and that's true, will be raised whether we're believers or not, unbelievers res resurrected to judgment, but believers will be resurrected in body and prepared for the new heavens and the new earth. But sometimes the New Testament in particular, but also in the Old Testament, they speak of the soul as though that were the very heart and center of the human essence, the human being. And I think it does so rather provocatively to remind us, again, of that immaterial aspect that's intrinsic to our human nature that will uh, someday persist even after our own death. And so it's, it's really important to just get straight to it. And the subtitle is called How Jesus Saves Sinners. Now, interestingly, you know, when I was talking with the publisher about uh, the title and the cover and things like that, originally it had a different subtitle. It was going to be called Souls, A Concise Exposition of the Gospel. That's That was the original subtitle, A Concise Exposition of the Gospel, which says what the book is, which is yeah. great. But I was concerned that the words concise and exposition might be somewhat confusing and so at the very last minute, and I mean at the very last minute, we scrapped it and we went with How Jesus Saved Sinners as the subtitle. And I am so glad we made that change okay. because I, I think that that too says something even more important so that even the title and cover of the book is a message of the gospel. Yeah. And I appreciate too, uh, I'll just mention this for readers to know, um, this maybe is a good segue into the next question as well. So you talk about the idea of souls and even in the book like you kind of you as i said earlier you kind of feather things out a little bit but you don't go on rabbit trails you you mention bipartite versus tripartite like uh body and soul versus body soul and spirit or uh soul sleep versus uh, you know different different ways that people have kind of tackled that idea of souls so i, I appreciate that you you don't just use the word as just a filler title you actually do in some of the uh, earlier chapters like explore what do we mean by soul like how does it compare to the philosophical enterprise of soul how does it compare to different views within uh, christianity or even different uh, cultic views uh, outside mm -hmm. of christianity and so I, I thought that was good because it gives people like a context as well as the specific definition that we're talking about uh you know, contra this or that. And I mm -hmm. really did appreciate the way that you kind of uh, stick to that uh, middle ground where you explore different things, but you don't go off like, here's a 50, you know, 50 page like tangent about this or that. I, mm -hmm. So I, I do want to commend you at, at that point. So bringing that up though, uh, souls can mean 
uh, different things in our culture today. Probably if you pulled 10 people aside, said, what is the gospel? You'd probably get 10 different answers. You'd probably get the same thing if you ask somebody, what is a soul or what do you mean? What do we mean by the word soul? You'd probably get 10 different answers for that too. So what do you think, like from a biblical perspective, is the greatest misconception about soul that has spilled over into Christianity and that maybe mm -hmm. you've ran into in your own church, Presbytery, other church contexts you've been a part of? Yeah, that's a great question. So let me um, let me explore a couple of options, which I, I do this in the book as well. But when it comes to the nature of, of the soul in relationship to the body, of course, different people have understood that in different ways throughout the ages. And there are at least four major categories in which people see this relationship. So the first one, we might speak in terms of a pure materialism. And so a pure materialist is a very secular idea that essentially says that we are nothing but the physicality of ourselves. There is no spirit or soul. And so when they speak of the, the idea of that you have a, a soul, they may merely be um, describing the fact that you're alive, that we happen to be physical material that is alive. And so they're not saying much, much more than that. So in sort of a secular uh, scientific worldview, there is not much more to you than the physical construction of your body down to the to the molecule, molecules and the atoms um, together comprising what we call the cells and then the greater body organs and structures. But for a materialist, when you die, you die. There is nothing else. There is nothing to look forward to. There is no God to greet you. Uh, there are there are, is no host of the heavenly ones who will see you on the other side. In a materialistic worldview, death is, is the end. Um, then you can swing wildly to the opposite of that and think maybe of a pantheistic worldview. A pantheism is an idea that there is something of the soul, but the souls of all living things sort of blend together into one life force. And we actually see that in places like the Star Wars uh, series, where the force is kind of that amalgamation of all living, living force life together as one. But pantheism is a, is a very pagan understanding of, of what the soul means. And the problem there is because it actually denies any sort of individuality, whereas Christianity holds uh, quite sincerely that we are individuals. You have a different soul than I have. Um, we may have some deep connection together between our souls, but nevertheless, uh, we are we are different uh, em embodied soul entities. And then you get some kind of amalgamations too, like deism, for instance, is a little bit closer to Christianity in that it has a creator God. But in deism, of course, God sort of backs off from the creation altogether, essentially lets it run. The common analogy is the analogy of the clockmaker. And in deism, then, there's very little importance to one's morality or to their life, to the purpose of their life. And so all of these conceptions of how the soul works in relationship with matter fail where exactly Christianity succeeds. Christianity, then, biblical creationism, is the only such construction of soul and body in which we have real individuality, we have real meaning and purpose in our lives, and we have a real eternity to face after the body succumbs in whatever way it eventually passes passes away in this particular life. 
And so I think that that import, that message is important enough that we should be, we should be talking more often about the fact that we do have, we, we do have a soul now within Christianity, of course, you mentioned, um, um, sort of the, the, the tripartite or the, the trichotomist versus the dichotomist view. That's an in-house debate amongst Christians. The, the debate there is whether or not the immaterial aspect is actually of two portions, the spirit and the soul, or whether or not those things are used synonymously as one. Uh, in Reformed theology, we are dichotomists, meaning that we believe that the essential uh, aspect of human nature is material and, and, and of the soul. So we don't see a strong differentiation between soul and spirit then. If there is one, it's not clear what that is in Scripture. But most of the time, those terms are used synonymously back and forth, soul and spirit in Christianity, so that we see them as essentially being the same one, same thing. We also talk about the heart. Uh, sometimes we talk about the mind. These things are also aspects of, of the soul as well. Although there, with the mind, it gets a little bit complicated because where do you differentiate between the mind and the brain itself, the actual physical gray matter, the connections of the synapses and things like this. But either way, the the the... In, in this book, I'm trying to get people to think about the fact that they do have a soul that is going to fa face its creator someday. I think apologetically, when you bring up these ideas of body, soul, and spirit versus just you know body and soul or anything like that, it's it gets people thinking, it gets the the wheels spinning, and I think that's helpful because it for the person reading it, I'll say this whether it's a non-Christian or whether it's a professing Christian like myself, it's a great reminder, not only for the fact that in the Bible, uh, people who already know the gospel are reminded about the gospel again and again, because we need that reminder. Uh, the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me because we're prone to forget uh, what he has done for us. And so we, we constantly need reminders. We need to be told things that we already know, uh, but it can have a fruitful effect on a professing Christian as well as somebody that's not a professing Christian, because we start to explore these kind of uh, thoughts that we might have off the cuff or things we've maybe been struggling with a lot more uh, directly. And then we can then apply that to, okay, here's what I've been thinking about this. Here's what I've been thinking about that. But now how do I understand all of these kind of uh, seemingly disconnected ideas in the unified reality of my soul what is all what do all these things collectively mean for my soul particularly and i think um it's a really good kind of apologetic or evangelistic way that these ideas are are presented in the book now if you were to open this book as i'm doing right now and you uh, go through the chapter titles you can see uh, what we might call in Presbyterian reform circles a redemptive historical flow. Mm -hmm. uh, to understand the good news, you got to know the bad news, which makes the good news good and necessary. And you follow that trajectory in your book. You don't just begin with heaven. Wouldn't you like to be there? Well, here's why you can't. And mm -hmm. that kind of thing, mm -hmm. like you, mm -hmm. you follow the Here's who we are as created in the image of God. Here's what's went wrong. Here's what we need. Here's, you know, you go through that. And I think when people think about that trajectory, it's very much a biblical theological flow to the way you present the gospel, which is ironically enough, how the Bible presents the gospel. Mm -hmm. But 
it's it's common. I've heard this quite a bit. Where how do you present the gospel, or can you present the gospel in a way that is kind of outside of uh, your theological distinctives? You're a Presbyterian pastor. Uh, you're in that sense, you belong to uh, the Reformed community. You're a part of a Presbyterian church, so that's a, a Calvinistic. Uh, kind of framework of how you would understand the Bible, myself as well. I'm a part of a Presbyterian church. But I've heard the argument made that is 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 it possible to present the gospel without spilling over into, oh, now you've just defaulted to Calvinism. Now you've just now how can you how can you present the gospel in a meaningful way uh, without uh, kind of intersecting all of your predestination and election ideas? And these are the kind of arguments that people uh, could and very often do make uh, when it comes to how a Methodist presents the gospel versus how a Baptist or a Presbyterian. So um, do you think it is possible to speak of the subtitle of your book in particular, How Jesus Saves Sinners, uh, without getting into specific traditions? And do you think that it's uh, better or worse to do that because obviously in the book like i don't know that you use the word calvinism but you obviously use uh, phrases like total depravity which is part mm -hmm. of a kind of a reformed understanding so i think it would be helpful if you maybe just explore this idea because uh, i find it to be a tension for people that want to decide how specific do we have to actually be when it comes to presenting the gospel mm. yeah it's a great question well um so what do I want people to take away from this book, right? I'm not arguing for Presbyterianism as such, although it is also impossible for me to think outside of who I am. And I'm not going to pretend that I'm somebody that I'm not, um, just to make the reader comfortable. So while I tried to minimize technical jargon as much as possible, for instance, I don't come out and say this is a, a Calvinistic presentation of the gospel. I, in fact, I tried to avoid that for as much as possible. Yet, nevertheless, we're always going to present the gospel featuring some of its aspects that we think are imminently biblical. So, for instance, the other night I was teaching a lecture at our church here, and we're talking about how salvation works. And I gave the analogy of slicing a pie like a pie graph, what percentage of your salvation is God's work and what percentage is your work? Um, do you contribute anything to your salvation? Well, you know, it strikes us as somewhat irreligious to suggest that the pie should be split evenly, half God's work and half my work, because that's certainly not true. And then you say, well, well what do we contribute? 25%, 10%, 1%? And the Calvinist is essentially the person who says, no, the pie cannot be split at all. All of salvation is God's work. And that work has begun in eternity past in our election. Uh, in some sense, it culminates at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it continues on even to our own effectual call when the Spirit of God does a work in my heart, uh, convicting me of my sin and turning me to faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, enabling me to believe so as I'm writing this book, I'm thinking to myself, okay, 
Um, I'm going to intentionally not quote Jonathan Edwards as much as I want to. And I restrain myself, you'll be proud of me, to only two quotations from yeah. Edwards, yeah. which I thought was very good considering I'm an Edwards scholar. But yes, I do quote Martin Luther and I do quote John Calvin and I did quote the Westminster Confession of Faith when it comes up from time to time. Mm. Although, again, I'm trying to write to an audience that uh, may be hearing some of these things for the first time. And so anytime I used anything even approaching a technical theological term, I tried to give it as best I could a street definition so that it would be as understandable as possible. Essentially, though, to answer your question, I don't I don't think there is any sort of mere Christianity that can avoid some of these questions. Um, we can avoid discussions of, on denominations, but when it comes to how the Spirit of God actually works to convert the heart. Either we're going to come to a position that our salvation is entirely due to God's work in the gospel, or in some measure shared by my own acting and uh, responsibility in terms of my my merits or my my uh, religious contribution to it. And so, yes, this book is written from a Calvinistic perspective. There's no way I, I can avoid that. That is the way that we see the gospel. We see the gospel as extraordinarily gracious because God does all of the saving work from election to calling to uh, regeneration to justification to our sanctification and ultimately to our glorification, which is our preparation to live with them in heaven. All of that is the work of of Christ graciously done and performed by the three persons of the Trinity. So in that sense, um, it's written by a Presbyterian. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, so it's it's important, I think, when, when people um, want to present the gospel, the most important thing is that you do so in the way that you believe the Bible presents it. So I, I think you know, it's not necessarily a, a setup question. I think it's it's a worthwhile question because people do present it in that way. But I think it's somehow uh, a setup, or it's somehow misguided because the idea is that you is that the gospel is an abstract thing that you can detach and remove from what you think the Bible teaches. But uh, the same thing can be said, like Calvinism, Reformed theology, whatever you want to call it is not just a, a thing that you put on top of the Bible. It's not just a pair of glasses. It's what you believe the Bible teaches. It's what you think is a, a faithful summary of what the Bible says. And so really, uh, at the end of the day, you're just presenting the gospel as you see it in Scripture. And I think if people think of that, then uh, we can maybe avoid some of the more like combative, like this versus that type thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could you could simply say that there are areas of large agreement between Christians, and that's important to emphasize, too, that even if you weren't from my particular tradition, I think you could still gain a lot from the book, because ultimately, at least all Bible-believing Christians can agree that Jesus died on the cross in a way that brings about atonement for those who repent and believe. Um, we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, and we believe that he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. So we can um, reduce to areas of agreement that are central, that all true Bible-believing Christians would hold dear. The problem, though, is when we begin to talk about what those things mean. So, for instance, when we speak of Jesus' death on the cross in atonement, 
Well, to for whom did he savingly atone when he died on the cross? And that that's a question that strikes to the heart of Calvinism and Arminianism. So <laughs> did he die to save everybody or did he die to redeem his elect? Well, we think the Bible has something to say about those things. But I tried to, as much as possible, give a, um, a, a an impassioned, full-hearted plea for people to consider the Savior, Jesus Christ. And again, it's not an argument for Presbyterianism as such, um, but it is certainly an argument that people would look to a good and gracious Savior and find him entirely sufficient to take away their sin debt and to find peace with God. That's the point of the book for sure. So the book is set up somehow in kind of the analogy of uh, the real dollar bill versus the counterfeit. Uh, so you you spend most of your time uh, focusing on the real thing, which is necessary and good. Here mm -hmm. is what the gospel is. But I think uh, rightly so, uh, you do move kind of uh, you kind of shift the focus at one point um, to speak of what the gospel is not. And of course, mm -hmm. we think that is kind of the heretical movements throughout church history, uh, what false gospels are. You think all the way back to uh, the beginning of Galatians. This is nothing new. You even mentioned this passage in your book. Uh, Paul is kind of bewildered at the fact that the Galatians have bought into this false gospel. And that threat and that reality has continued uh, century by century. And when I look at something like the prosperity gospel, um, not to say that it's dead and gone, uh, but I think that when we think of the phrase false gospel, I know for me, I'm so accustomed to thinking of the televangelists that I grew up as a child of the 90s. You know, they're all over the place on TV. They were even all over the place, like back in the 80s. Uh, these were the people that before the days of social media, they dominated the airwaves and the TV stations. Uh, but a lot of these people like Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, and et cetera, like they're getting older and uh, mm -hmm. kind of the technological innovations have changed. And so I think maybe there's a threat for Christians to just throw out the name Joel Osteen so much that we think that that is the essence of false gospels. But, mm -hmm. you know, Satan is cunning and he is not going to be limited on uh, kind of the fact that technological innovations have changed from how they were in the, the turn of the 20th to the 21st century. So you have to think he's still at work to deceive and manipulate. So what do you think is either maybe uh, down the line or maybe something that's actually here now in terms of false gospels that we might uh, treat as inconspicuous, maybe something that's not given enough attention or or the the warning alarm is not sounded as loudly as it should be when it comes yeah. to false gospels okay let me talk a bit in in general generalization and then i'll i'll mention a very specific application of this so in general false gospels are usually of two kinds and of course you might see this as being extremes on either end of a continuum. On one hand, you have false gospels that we would call of the legalistic kind, and that is where human beings establish higher qualifications than God himself has established in his word in order to find a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. 
So for instance, in the book of Galatians, the kind of error that Paul is very concerned about is a legalistic error because they have established additional qualifications, in other words, the external comportment to the law, in addition to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ as prerequisite for salvation. So whenever man uh, gets his fingers in the pudding and makes it harder to be saved, then God has made it through faith and repentance in Christ. We call that a legalistic error. On the other hand, and to the other extreme, there are antinomian errors. And this word uh, needs a little bit of definition, anti against namas, the law, um, these would be errors that focus on removing the law entirely so that the law doesn't condemn us. In other words, it has a very low view of God's holiness and a very high view of man man's ability. So these are the two kinds of extremes. It's kind of like driving down a road on the gospel in which there are cliffs on either side. We have to be very careful that we don't fall into legalistic errors by adding requirements that the Bible doesn't give us. At the same time, we cannot neglect the fact that the, the law of God does condemn us as sinners and therefore requires us to have atonement through the blood of, of Jesus Christ. Um, any error that suggests that you don't need to repent or you don't need a Savior or that there may be many ways to salvation or that all souls will eventually be saved, we would call those antinomian errors. And then any error that adds layers of bureaucracy, religious or otherwise, to the gospel, we would call legalistic errors. Now, you mentioned prosperity gospel. I'm concerned about that, too. And by the way, I don't think it's over. Um, we, You and I probably don't watch that kind of TV anymore if we ever did in the first place. But believe me, it is alive and well in Africa and other third world countries where it has been exported as a product to uh, to the third world, unfortunately, by the Christian church. And it is it is still a very dangerous, dangerous error today, the prosperity gospel is. But I think that in Western culture, there is another insidious error that is growing quite rapidly. And to wade, to wade into a little bit of controversy here, if you don't mind, I think that wokeism itself is a false gospel. And the reason is because it presents us as, as having a certain kind of sin based on our immutable aspects of our physical nature, namely our skin color and or our gender uh, or our own physical biology. And uh, at the same time, it requires a certain kind of penance, but that penance is not to the Lord and living God. It's to an ideology. And so what we're seeing now is people that are overwhelmed with guilt um, overwhelmed with, with real guilt, and yet they're turning to a different source to try to find alleviation for that shame and guilt. They're turning to the ideology of social justice. And so that's why we see people posting certain things on Instagram to declaring, you know, their, their sensibilities. We're seeing people go through these kind of ideological retrainings at university settings and in schools and in uh, even large businesses. Corporations are retraining these people to repent of their own immutable aspects. And instead, they're, they're asking them to put faith not in the living God or his son, Jesus Christ, but to put faith in a certain brand of, of ideological politicization. And therein hoping to find some kind of remittance for their guilt and their shame. Now, I, I personally think that is a very false gospel. I don't think there is any forgiveness to be found in such ideologies. And so even if we show up to the march 
even if we hold up the, the biggest sign, even if we paint ourselves in, in rainbow colors and we bow the knee uh, before people of a different, uh, a different stripe in terms of intersectionality, I don't think that there's going to be any cleansing of soul level guilt in that kind of a movement. And I'm very concerned that that is a, that is a false gospel that has pervaded even the Christian church. So that we're taking on some of this this kind of uh, ideology training language and even incorporating it into um, what should be more biblical sermonic presentations of the gospel. I think that's a real danger myself. I do mention it slightly in the book, but that's not the main focus. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting because that entire movement is focused merely on the physicality of things it's mm-hmm. the skin color it's the uh geographical lineage it never gets to the soul which is very fascinating in terms of like your book that's also maybe a way to look at it is it's a new variety of platonism uh or may- maybe we could say that it's a it's a reverse uh, a reversal of classical platonism because it in one sense, it's like Platonism that it views all of the physical aspects of a person as intrinsically evil or something like that. Um, so you have to rid yourself of them. You have to rid yourself of your skin color, your nationality, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but still, it's it's like a you're stuck in a revolving door. You can never get outside of that. That's exactly uh, the problem. Um, it is is clearly a false mimicry of Christianity because it does have an original sin, but the original sin does not go back to Adam and Eve, as the scripture teaches, but instead goes back to certain points in history, American history and West history of Western culture. It roots our identitarian sin in certain acts that were perpetrated um, a number of generations ago. It assumes that those acts then continue to afflict us and draw us, us into their guilt. Um, but instead of ever being able to find any kind of real atonement or the forgiveness of soul level deep sin. Instead, it points us to this, like you said, a a never ending rotating door of liturgical response, wherein you have to, you have to continue to renounce these things over and over again, but you're not, you're not renouncing them to any particular deity. What you're renouncing them to is those disaffected and apparently oppressed persons on the other side of the intersectionality chart as you. Mm-hmm. And therein is the false gospel. And mm-hmm. so ironically, it's both legalistic and that it adds these burdens of requirements of things that it wants you to do. But it's also antinomian in the sense that it has no real value for the holiness of God. Mm-hmm. And so it's just kind of this ironic amalgam between legalism on one hand and antinomianism on the other but certainly pointing us almost directly away from the resurrected Jesus as the answer to our own sin and to the woes of society. Yeah. Um, Another, just kind of to backtrack just a little bit, uh, mentioning the false gospel or prosperity gospel in particular, um, I talked about the kind of trajectory of technological innovations and how that has changed things uh, at least in our day and age. Uh, but I think people make the argument a lot of times that certain countries are maybe one decade, maybe sometimes even more like two decades behind uh, in terms of technology or maybe even even like pop culture, like what kind of movies or things like that are are 
uh, really taken root somewhere that we in the West have kind of moved on to the next thing already. And uh, you mentioned how the prosperity gospel is still particularly alive and well in some of these other countries, uh, which just, again, speaks to the fact of kind of being behind in terms of, of uh, trends. Uh, so they're still kind of doubling down on the places where they can really get the money is, is really what it comes down to. Uh, but just in terms of that, other countries, uh, one thing that we have skipped over in your book, which I thought was very interesting in the way that you presented the need for this, was you told the story about uh, you, you being asked to train uh, missionaries, um, mm -hmm. and they're getting ready to go into other countries, whether or not these are the same countries that the, the prosperity gospel is being uh, kind of presented, I don't know for sure, but could you just kind of uh, summarize that that little anecdote that you gave in the book? Because I thought it was really helpful to kind of set the the stage. Yeah, so actually this book is kind of the series, the product of a series of sermons and lectures that I taught to a group of missionaries. I had been for a number of years in a row asked to um, to train missionaries that were preparing for the mission field. They were going to go and spend several months on the mission field with a fairly well-known missions organization that I, that I won't, uh, won't name here. But um, I was to prepare a series of lectures called Sin and the Cross, and I was asked to speak five days in a row, three hours a day for a total of 15 hours of content. And they all they told me was that I was to speak on sin and the cross. And so I divided the lectures roughly in half. I spent the first two and a half days, Monday through Wednesday, talking about total depravity. And then I turned the corner uh, on Wednesday and spent the rest of the week, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, speaking about the atonements and propitiation that comes through Jesus' death on the cross. I thought I was teaching very, very basic Christianity. I mean, here we are just talking about the sinful nature of human of human beings, uh, Adam's fall, and how it affected all of us, and how Jesus, through his propitiatory death on the cross, does then satisfy and quench the wrath of God, a holy God, against sinners, thereby bringing us into a state of justification and reconciliation. Okay, so I thought all of that was fairly basic. Yeah. Couple days in, I realized that I had kicked the hornet's nest because these missionaries had not heard these things. They were preparing to go onto the mission field, and they did not have a basic rooting in the the very heart of the gospel message itself. Many of these young people had been reared in churches that seemed to talk about everything but the gospel. And so they essentially saw themselves as purveyors of of good works. We're going out to do good works for good people mm. and good times will follow. So it's yeah. like good, good, and good. Yeah. But I gave them Christ. And it was interesting to see their responses because some were, were furious. Uh, at least one or two quit the course because they were mad at what I was saying. Others were entirely enchanted by this, gobbling up everything I said, writing copious notes um, because I was finally giving them something that their pastors had apparently neglected to give them all along, which is expositions of scripture pointing to Jesus's mediatorial work as our savior and our redeemer. So, you know, I taught this course every year and every year I got the same reaction. It just became very entrenched in my mind that the church itself needs to continue to hammer away at that same basic redemption message of Jesus Christ again and again and again. And don't assume that our college students know it. 
don't assume that our young people are are getting it, and certainly don't assume that the pastor and and the other pulpit down the street is preaching it because he may not be, according to my experience. You know, in one sense, surprised when I read that, but in another sense, I think you know why why should I be surprised? Uh, because that's that is the kind of danger that we can we should never assume um, that people. Uh, know the gospel as they should, even if they've been, you know, hand selected or just paid the admission fee to become a, a missionary. And so I, I thought that was a really uh, provocative way to present uh, the the thrust of the book, uh, because you you do mention that at the beginning of the book. And maybe that's a good way to also segue into our next question. Um, we talked about the false gospel dilemma. Yeah, whether it's prosperity gospel or something new coming down the road, uh, we tend to think, at least myself, as a, a Reformed Christian, somebody that's in a denomination that is not perfect, but careful about who is in pulpits, uh, who's holding a particular position, uh, whether in the local church or in the denomination at large. I feel that there's a lot of checks and balances that are in place in our denomination, so it's easy to think about false gospels as out there somewhere as mm -hmm. opposed to in your own church. Um, so whether we're talking about theological systems or not, I think it's worth mentioning um, what are some of the uh, soul dangers? Uh, let's get back to the title of the book here. What are some dangers of the soul that even if we're not in a prosperity gospel context, or maybe we're in a theologically safe environment altogether, whether it's the PCA or something else, uh, what do you think some of those soul dangers are, uh, whether for the minister or for uh, people in the congregation, uh, that we need to be aware of that can exist in these kind of otherwise safe environments? Hmm. Well, the the ideologies of the world do creep into the church and it's it's very hard to prevent that from happening. We see that happening throughout church history over and over again. Even as I'm preaching right now through the book of Revelation, looking at the seven churches that Christ uh, rebukes and in some cases comforts in chapters two and three, it's pretty clear that there is always going to be an infiltration of the world's ideas that find their way into the church again and again, and therefore need to be rooted out over and over um, I have a little illustration, I guess, in the book where I talk about the two primary worldviews. There's two basic ways to see the whole world. The one I call everythingism, and the other I call nothingism. And nothingism is actually a philosophical school of nihilism or nihilism, but not everybody knows that word. It basically means that nothing matters. Nihilism is the idea that uh, at the end of your life, you're going to die. And then there's pretty much nothing to look forward to or to fear after that. Uh, nihilism is the idea that the world is going to eventually go cold or burn itself up or the sun will go out and the world will cease to exist. And so therefore, life itself is, is utterly meaningless unless I impute some meaning to my life, in which case I'm free to fabricate any kind of ideology that will bring some kind of happiness to my soul. And so nothingism is essentially a very pessimistic way to look at the world. 
nothingism is why people become addicted to the internets, why they become gamers and waste away their, their 20s and their 30s on video games. Nothingism is why people get pulled into all sorts of uh, aberrant forms of sexuality because they think nothing really matters. There is no ethic. There is no morality. There's really nothing to confine me to just basically uh, doping myself up in, with whatever gives me the next buzz to get through the day. And then after that, I'll die and nothing, nothing matters. So it's a it's a very dangerous um, way to see the world. And unfortunately, even some of that pessimism can creep into the church when we begin to believe some of the some of the existentialist ideas of like I create my own reality. I, I decide who I am and what my purpose is. I think that's a real soul danger. On the other hand, what Christianity is, it's a it's an everythingism um religion because we believe everything matters. Literally everything matters. And the reason everything matters is because Jesus rose from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, then there is a life to come, and there is a God who's going to judge the world, and uh, there is a real heaven to be looking forward to and a real hell to fear. And so everythingism of Christianity suggests that literally everything you do matters. Every day has significance to it. Every person you meet is an immortal soul that's going to live in heaven or hell forever. And so it's really a way of just reframing the whole importance of our entire lives. Now, because we believe everything matters, literally everything, that doesn't mean that everything matters equally. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that great passage on, on the resurrection, that there are things of first importance. In other words, there are certain priorities in our lives that we have to get right. Mm -hmm. God must be central and even dominant in our lives. Christ is worthy to be served and his name ought to be proclaimed. The church should be our context for life. Our family matters. Our co-workers matter. And so all of these things matter, but in sort of a ranked priority system where it's it's God and then it's it's church and, and then it's, you know, other such things down the line, even down to my vocation matters, whether I'm a, a plumber or an HVAC technician or whatever, everything matters, but it doesn't matter equally. And so the key to life then is to figure out what are the highest and most valuable priorities and pursue those things doggedly and with zeal so that I'm making sure that my life is making the most possible significance while I'm alive. Mm -hmm. And so I think that everythingism is imminently greater than nothingism. And if you're sort of wallowing in, in the, the mire of purposelessness, then think on the resurrection of Jesus and he will point you to a life that is entirely significant. All right. So here's our last question, uh, specifically dealing with the book. Um, I have one kind of uh, parting question to ask you, but here's our last one. Uh, you mentioned uh, just a, a moment ago about the fact that you're preaching through the book of Revelation uh, mm -hmm. at your church, which, by the way, um, I think just about uh, the, well, at least the vast majority of my subscribers, I think were probably your subscribers first. Uh, so I would imagine most people that are watching this are already subscribed to your YouTube channel. But if they're not, um, you can go to Matt Everhard's channel and uh, he has been uh, posting the videos uh, from his uh, sermon series through Revelation. So just a plug for that. If you want to check those out, highly beneficial. Uh, but the fact that you mentioned you're preaching through the book of Revelation, uh, I wonder if you could maybe 
uh, speak of the intersection of that book, kind of its main thrust, uh, the fact that you do have kind of a mixed bag of both warnings and comfort and encouragement, uh, not only with the seven churches, but the book as a whole, and maybe mm -hmm. how that intersects with what you hope to leave people with uh, when they're reading this book that you've written. Well, um, what I want to leave them with is a is a burden to share the gospel, and that's kind of where the book ends up winding up is with uh, an invitation to share what what one has learned and what one has received by grace through faith in Christ. The book actually ends somewhat ironically with a challenge to uh, evangelism and missions, and I conclude with a, um, a, a kind of an extended analogy of the Titanic. Now, my anniversary, my wedding anniversary happens to be <laughs> on the date of the sinking of the Titanic. So Kelly and I, my wife, we think that's somewhat funny that it's not a metaphor for our marriage. <laughs> but the Titanic is kind of a metaphor for what happened at the fall. Um, and, and at the fall in the garden, Adam and Eve, they hit the iceberg. And from that point forward, humanity is essentially on a sinking ship. Um souls will go down into the water, unfortunately, and there will be many who are lost. But at the end of the Titanic story, and remember, it's a true story, there is this moment where some of the redeemed are on the lifeboats, and they are looking back towards this flailing mass of humanity freezing in, in the 33-degree temperature water, and they have an opportunity to go back and to rescue some of those who are perishing. Unfortunately, what we know from history is that very few of them took that risk. They didn't want to risk being pulled into the water themselves. And so I kind of conclude with this powerful thought, at least I think it's powerful, of you've got to go back. You've got to go back now that you're on this, you on, you are on the uh the life raft, the the saving uh the float of of grace. The most important thing you can do right now is go back and try to grab somebody else. Humanly speaking, we want to we want to grab them with the gospel, and um, of course, it's all the saving work of Christ's Spirit who does this. But we want people to find a redeemer, and so I challenge people to just to go back and share the gospel with their neighbor, their colleague, their friend, whoever um, that they have opportunity to share with. And so I kind of end there. I didn't say anything about the Book of Revelation necessarily, other than the breakdown in that analogy is that Titanic goes down never to return, right? It's still at the bottom of the water, and it's always going to be down there so many miles deep or whatever. But um, at the end of Revelation, we see something different from that. At the end of the book of Revelation, we actually see the new heavens and the new earth. So there, there is the disjunct in the metaphor that God is going to make all things right, and there will be a time where all death is put away, all crying and pain and mourning is gone finally, and um, what was lost in the paradise in Genesis uh, chapter 3 is going to be reconstituted in great and glorious ways that right now only the imagination can capture. And that's why heaven gives a, or Revelation gives us pictures of heaven with things like streets of gold, right? And the streets of gold analogy means that the greatest thing here in this world <laughs> is the least of things in the heavenly places. You will literally walk on gold because it is invaluable compared to the great glories of, of the beatific vision and looking upon your creator and seeing him face to face. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, the book of Revelation is great. It's a thrill to preach through it here at Gospel Fellowship. We're posting all those sermons online regularly and just invite any viewers out there to join us as we work through this book. It's my first time working through Revelation, so I'm learning something every single week. I come into the pulpit. I am refreshed and renewed by this great gospel presentation that is the apocalypse. And I think your book presents a a compelling case. And so I again, I was uh I was reading through this book not only in preparation for our interview because I, I reached out to you and said I wanted to do that, but also uh, it was a good devotional reminder for me. Uh it was it was a really good uh, kind of recalibration of a few things and I appreciated the way that you uh, presented the gospel in the book. Uh, so yeah, I commend it to all of our listeners. Uh, I mentioned uh, to you that we could do uh, uh, Souls uh, Stocking Stuffer Edition. Uh, and as it turns out, the time you're watching this video, uh, those of you uh, on YouTube or the podcast, uh, you should still have time to grab a copy for yourself or uh, for maybe an unsaved friend or family member. Uh, it is a very approachable book. Um I'm also reading through Holy Living, uh, your treatment of Jonathan Edwards' resolutions, which I've been working through much more slowly because I read all the footnotes and I've been just digesting mm -hmm. all of the citations that the book is just littered with from Edwards himself. Uh, so to be able to kind of move from uh, Dr. Everhard, the uh, academic, to Dr. Everhard, the pastor here, if I'm allowed to use that uh, analogy in this book was refreshing because um, it's approachable to anybody from any uh, kind of level of academic uh, awareness of, of theology in the Bible. So I'll have a link in the description here uh, for you to get a copy of this book on Amazon. And maybe I'll just leave with asking, uh, you've published this book, here it is out in the open for people to buy. Uh, are there any new book projects or maybe uh kind of goals you have for the next year on your youtube channel or is there anything that you're kind of working on right now or any other supplemental content that you would recommend to to listeners well i have big news to break kevin but it's not going to be today my friend i have a, a major project that i can't wait to announce but i can't quite do it yet I can tell you that on December 18th, check out DesiringGod.com because I have an article coming out there about the 300th anniversary of Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. He began on December 18th of 1722 to write his 70 resolutions. So fittingly, that anniversary is coming up. So you can check that out. I'm also teaching a course on Jonathan Edwards at the Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Pittsburgh, which you could join me for. If you are anywhere in the area, you could come take that class. It's only a one credit class. It's really easy. It'll be very inexpensive. And if you want to audit it, you can do so for uh, pennies on the dollar. If you wanted to sit in the class and, and join me, we're going to have two days of talking about Jonathan Edwards, my, my favorite study subject. So that's that's coming up as well. But uh, we'll have to talk about that major announcement next time, my friend. Hopefully, I wish I could say it today, but it's just not inked yet. But it is going to be the biggest and the best project that I've ever done in my life. It's going to include a number of other scholars, and it's going to be something that I hope has lasting impact for in the neighborhood of 20 to 30 years after its publication. So we'll see. We'll see. That's enough hint dropping for me, but uh, I'm pretty excited about it. Very cool. Well, 
it has been a pleasure to have you on again. Uh, wish you the best at your, most importantly, your local church context and your uh, pastoral ministry there, and also your YouTube channel, your academic uh, involvements and projects, uh, especially the yet-to-be-named one uh, that I'll be uh, keeping an eye out for. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to be on uh, the podcast. It was really great to be with you again. You're welcome. I loved it, and thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. All right. Well, we'll be with you again soon. Thanks for watching, friends, on the Better Bible Reading Podcast.